0: Welcome to The Backdrop Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, our two very special guests are Mike and Ashley Young, the designers, owners, and operators of the Fields Golf Club in LaGrange, Georgia. Talk to anyone who visits the Fields, and you'll hear this place lives up to both their name and their slogan, simply Golf. It's public, affordable, easily walkable, with no housing development in sight. Conveniently for our Atlanta contingent of members, it's one hour from downtown. Mike Young is a golf course architect who got his start in the biz as a rep selling equipment to superintendents. He walks us through those early days when the course opened in 1989 and what led him to the eventual purchase of the fields. Ashley runs the day-to-day operations of the course and shares a bit about his world travels and what eventually brought him back to the fields why it's the best value, and occasionally, the best party in Georgia. Speaking of parties, our annual spring meeting, April 17th at Sweetens Cove, is in its final week of registration, which closes this Friday, April 9th. If there's a golf party you don't want to miss, my vote is the spring meeting. That's it. Big thanks to our official partner of the spring meeting, Golf Blueprint. Every golfer is looking to improve, and the path to improvement is unique to each of us. We've all been dealt different resources, goals, available time, and personalities. Fellow members Kevin Moore and Nico Daris draw on their analytics, education, performance, and psychology expertise to build data and research-driven improvement plans tailored to your game. This is the final week for our members to sign up in the app for your exclusive Golf Blueprint package. Uh, This exclusive package includes six Golf Blueprint practice plans delivered monthly at a 25% discount. After taking about four months off after the birth of my first daughter, I've been doing a golf blueprint once a week in the early spring. And what I love most about my specific golf blueprint is that although I have way less time on my hands, Kevin and Nico's algorithm takes all the guesswork out of my practice. I show up to the range knowing exactly what I need to do, and I do it. 45 minutes later, I leave feeling like I actually did something for my golf game. So, if you're not a member of New Club, head over to GolfBlueprint.com and start making the most of the little practice time you have and enjoy yourself while doing it. Now, without further ado, on to the show with Ashley and Mike Young of the Fields Golf Club. Mike and Ashley Young of the Fields Golf Club, welcome to The Bag drop. How you guys doing this morning?
1: Good. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I got my daughter dropped off at uh, day her first day of daycare today, so it was a little emotional start to the morning. But uh, I'm doing all right. No tears. Uh, first day of
2: daycare is tough.
0: Be, being being with you know father son though, it's got me thinking about the the child relationship a, a lot today.
2: I remember the first day he went to daycare. T- tell us about it, huh? T- tell us about it. I told him to go get him. <laughs> I said, I can't do it. head on blue overalls. It was, it was tough.
0: That's uh, my daughter, Eleonora had pink overalls on today and she, she made a mess of them. As soon as I handed her off to those fine daycare people all wearing their masks now. Um, She, she, she messed them as soon as I made the transition, but uh, a lot like her dad. Yeah. So we're we're going to talk a lot of golf today, guys. Um, uh, we're going to talk about the fields where members of our Atlanta chapter new club are going to be hanging out a good bit, at least at least once a month. Uh, my goal is to get a big group of us down there in September, but uh, but I want to see more consistent um, play with you guys, just because of of everybody that has has come y- your way, and and we got a lot of Chicagoans who have actually stopped by. Uh, they say great things about the track, so. I, that's kind of what, what this is. is kind of an introduction of, of you, you guys and the Fields Golf Club. Um, but I want to start with, with Mike uh, and kind of your intro in, into the game. You didn't come into it the way that, that so many others end up getting in the golf industry. Um, you were a salesman for Toro. Is that right?
2: Yeah, but I, I did that on purpose so I could get in it because I didn't want to work for an architect. So I just, um, Toro was, you know, Toro on that end of things is like Titleist. It was the company had the irrigation, had the machinery. So you could see every golf course, talk to every superintendent, call on developers and architects. So you could end up making your network. And so that was my goal was to work for Toro long enough to know what was what and I could, I could go out and I wouldn't be sitting in an office drafting or something. That was, uh, I did that until I found somebody that let me do something. (laughs) And you met
0: what, four or five golf courses a day. You were probably in the car all the time. What, what did you learn from, from, uh, what did you learn about design from that experience?
2: Well, I would go and call on an architect, you know, if they were going to be doing a golf course and there weren't that many when I started, there wasn't, wasn't the boom. And I might, I might hear of a course that needed a master plan. I might go to an architect and say, Hey, look, I'd go by his office and I would call on him for irrigation to get that spec or call on him about mowing equipment. And so uh, I learned that there was a, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put my finger on that business of how these guys were basically drawing these things and specifying them out and detailing. them, But there was another group that was out there getting all that put in the dirt and built. And I was intrigued with that. And I would um, find the golf superintendents. Like at that time, there was a company out of Chicago called Braniger, which was um, Georgia was Union Camp Lumber. That was their residential real estate division. They were building a place called Skidaway Island. that was six golf courses. And I watched them develop that, you know, and I, I could go down there. I might be there three or four days at a time. We would be selling the irrigation, but I was free to go all out there, watch the shapers. And so I just kept writing names down so that when I, I had figured out that there was a lot of BS in the business and I figured out that these are the guys that actually can, put it down there. And so when I, I kept my little black book of names and developers and did that for about five years.
0: And what was it, um, you're, you know, uh, people of the same age coming up in the business that were going to work for architects. I mean, was your route. Did you think you made it more difficult on yourself or, or, uh, Oh,
2: looked, probably. Yeah. They, it, uh, they didn't like it that you were doing it a different way. And so you obviously couldn't know what you were doing. And it was, it was not that anybody was a bad guy. It's just, that's just the way it'd been done, you know, which I think in, uh, and now it's changed back. Several of us about that same time, Tom Doak was starting out about the same time I did, and he was doing the same type thing, except he was looking for the premier sites and the national type things. And, um, you, you were. People didn't really uh, accept that. They wanted you to go to an office, draw a full set of drawings, and then bid it out to these contractors.
0: That was just the the accepted way of doing things.
2: That was the accepted way of doing it. It it, it, it had evolved to that on on purpose, and and it was. Now I think it's changed.
0: You you had a uh, conversation on another podcast, I believe, uh, with our friend Andy at the Fried Egg, And there's this, this quote I wanted to follow up with you on it's, you said, I didn't know enough to know what I was doing. And this is about the fields golf course, by the way, your first, Mm -hmm. your first build, which we'll talk plenty of, um, I didn't know enough to know what I was doing. If I had, I probably would have messed
2: it all up. Uh,
0: can you tell us more about what you meant, what you mean
2: there? Yeah. I mean, like, like I just basically went out. It was it was a cotton field, and it had a few trees in it, and all. And I started routing a golf course, trying to get the shots that I had perceived. We knew, and uh, you know, a lot of shots might be blind in a way. Not that they're unsafe, but uh, if I'd have been sitting in an office somewhere, I would have been sit, I would have been told, "You can't put that shot there because it's it'll be blind." or uh, you can't have a bunker there because you've got to come off the cart path and walk to the green. You'd have to walk, it would restrict your space. So there were a lot of those kind of issues. Uh, and you, you learn a few things when you're out there before that. I mean, like I'd already learned the, the construction basics, like, uh, you know, no irrigation. Irrigation has always need to be to both sides of the approach when it comes around the green, don't put one right in the middle of where you're going to come into the green. We all had all those things down, but the, the routing, uh, is, I like the routing, but a guy that had been trained by a modern day architect would, would say it's not worth a damn. Does that make it, sense? I, it
0: Yeah. Yeah. But is that, is that like objectively, you know, it, it wouldn't, if it was a scorecard, of the the routing that it would you know miss on a few points based on today's modern cr- criteria or yeah. is it is it a better routing because you didn't
2: uh you didn't have that checklist yes it is it's a better it's it's better because it's just ran it's random golf it's not where hey i've got to do this and i got to do this and you've already got six dogleg left so now let's put six dogleg right it's just random golf and and go play and uh, um, I'm trying to convince myself that that's the way I need to do it now.
0: <laughs> uh, Ashley, I, I know there was uh, once you started getting in the operations of the course and um, you guys, uh, you know, bought the property outright, a couple things changed. One thing that's notable that you just don't see. I mean, I can name I don't think I can name a, a golf course in Illinois that does this, but you guys cut one height out at the fields uh there's you know no no fairway rough until you get to the native grasses it's it's one one height so can you what what went into that decision and um what are some advantages you guys have seen
1: um it was some of it was economics um we were just dealing when i first got there we had a before we owned it i was using the equipment and then i was just kind of uh bequeathed and so it became just we started using a seven gang uh, pull frame that, that dad found um, from the 80s and refurbished it. And uh, so we could, we could get around quicker. The lightweight fairway units just with we, we run it with basically four guys, five guys, six at the most. Um, and so we've got a hundred and fifty eight acres out there, about 70 of that's fairway. And then so the rough was just one summer. We just couldn't. Stay caught up with the rough because of the rain, and it was just causing some some problems where people were talking about the rough more than the golf course. And so, finally, I just the next season we decided to experiment with it, and it just uh, it cleaned up a lot of the weeds uh, in the rough. Um, the aesthetics of the golf course too just just improved. So once I saw it and Dad saw it, we it, it looked more natural where the the native just came into uh into play it looked it looks just you could see more of the the topography of the uh the piece of land and you weren't looking at these fairway mow lines uh it sped up play in a lot of ways because uh we, we've we've got golfers from you know the pros that play out there all the way to you know that's that's the first time they've ever played golf and everywhere in between so um it it brought a lot of the angles back into play on some of the some of the greens where you could play more creatively um but economically it'll just let us keep the course in better condition too because we could just go out there mow it out and um you know laterally you got some some ball roll in there and and you had to think more about the uh the penal areas of the uh the native and whatnot but it, it let us focus some other maintenance hours other, other places and in general it just it uh it made it um it made it easier to take care of and it looked better. So we would just, everything's the same height of cut. We just changed the frequency of cut so that, you know, the tees are getting mowed a few days a week, the approaches and stuff, a lot of times three days a week. Um, and then the fairways, we can just kind of go as they, as they grow and just kind of dial it all in. So it was kind of just an organic, it wasn't really a master plan thing. It, it just kind of evolved, it made sense. and and people liked it so it stuck around yeah uh we didn't change anything and people be like "Yeah, what have you done it it just looks so much better out here and they didn't even understand what they were looking at you know the the only people we had problems with was we've got one gambling group that's they're, they're great to us but they're more gamblers than they are golfers and they were pissed off that you know they 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 didn't know where to roll the ball because they let themselves roll the ball in the fairway, but you can't roll the ball in the rough. And I'm just like, well, if y'all just played golf, you wouldn't have to worry about it because you don't think you had to roll the ball. But, um, you know, that was, that was really the only problem we, we really had. That was the only complaint.
0: You know, gamblers are always going to have a complaint about something. Yeah. Though. If you don't give them something to complain about, they don't have an excuse for why they lost. That's right. Uh, my, my research team, uh, which is really just fellow members who, who love, talking to people like yourselves, uh, who have made a life for golf. Um, you know, we found a ton on you, Mike, cause you've been on some podcasts. Now you, you got, uh, articles about your courses that you designed, but Ashley, I was, I was having a hard time digging up dirt, man. So <laughs> I was hoping that you could, uh, maybe just give us, you know, what, what brought you into golf? What were you doing beforehand? and and now you're you know owner operator of the fields but how, how did you
1: get there what what were your steps uh I would say it was a uh, it was a it was a reluctant journey I guess um I've uh, I've grown up with it dad mentioned selling I mean I remember being at the fields when I was I was in third or fourth grade and I'd be out there with dad and I just wanted to sit on the bulldozers and I mean, I remember it being just nothing but red clay. And and uh when he's doing the routing, like I used to go do routings with him, and I'd always try to figure out how he's figuring out how this is gonna end up being a golf course. So go out and do the stakings, and he could see he'd be pointing through a set of trees and, and be like, Yeah, there's gonna be a green over there, and we're just standing in these things, and I'm I'm looking for squirrels or something like that. And but I I didn't realize at the time how much. Information I was soaking up just growing up around him, and then I got to—I'd uh, go travel with him uh when he was selling equipment. So we'd go see. I mean, I've been in maintenance barns since I was six years old. I think I—I I barely remember raking bunkers one year at the Masters. I think it was '82. I didn't even understand where I was. I was just hanging back there with the guys at the maintenance shed and dad, and out there on a sand pro and. Uh, didn't really even understand what Augusta National was, so I I was exposed to golf my whole life, and so to me, it was just what my dad did, I didn't really think about it. Um, and then playing golf, the same thing, I he always he never pushed me to play, I I enjoyed playing, but um, it was uh, I'd go play with him, and they're all a bunch of scratch golfers, and I'm still duffing one in the woods, so to me, it was kind of nerve wracking, and I. I, uh, but I, at the same time, I'd be on these crazy courses where I didn't really uh, understand where I was, but I was taking it all in. And um, so then uh, after college, I just decided I was going to do my own thing. I wasn't going to – I worked for him all through high school, so I built – my first job was, you know, I was out there with the crews, lay inside. He, he had me digging bunkers with buddies with nothing but shovels because we couldn't get dozers back in there. And um, – so I, I worked kind of all aspects of it and was just like, I'm, I'm not going to just do this cause it's a layup. I'm going to go do my own thing. And, and, uh, but, uh, some of it all just translated. I studied art in college before I, me and the college and my parents decided maybe I need to put a hold on college for a little while. <laughs> and, uh, so then I went and, uh, I was big into whitewater kayaking and, uh, Traveled the country a bit doing that and then eventually got a job as a design assistant, ironically, um, with a manufacturer. And so we would bring in molds and do a lot of shaping, um, kind of the same things we do with a golf course, just on a micro level. So we'd take a piece of foam, like a square block of foam, and we would take that all the way from foam to fiberglass molds, to prototyping to actual product that was out there. And a lot of that just had to do it's like on a golf course, just, just water learning how, you know, stuff went across a a form, bringing it into form. Um, the same thing, the reality, like, okay, this is my idea, but the practicality of, well, how do we execute it? How do we get it out of a mold? And I think a golf course, you do some of the same things. It's like, well, here's the idea, but how do we actually go in and execute that? So you have some, just learned a lot about design compromises and whatnot. And then, um, I don't know. Kayaking was the same as golf to me too, that, that uh, you're just looking at lines, you're trying to visualize a line in your head and then make that line happen. Just in a boat, you're the ball and golf, you're, you're hitting the ball. Yeah. But um, then, uh, then dad was managing some courses. I'd uh, worked for, went back to school and got my finance degree and uh, um, started I was working at nights for an event company in 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 college and enjoyed that we ran a lot of really exclusive big big events and uh never thought that I would come back to serve but it, it's proven too with the running golf events and whatnot i mean I'll have you know little uh cotillion type ladies come up and and they have a meeting for me with a you know they want to do their wedding out there and they asked for Ashley and said they had a meeting with her. And I said, well, let me go get her and stuff like that. And I'll be on a tractor. I'll grease you. And then they wonder how the hell I know what a shivari chair is or something. And they're just completely confused. So it, it all kind of was a culmination, I guess. of They came back together. And so when dad took me down to the fields, I was, a, uh, I was reluctant. I was like, I don't know if we want to do this. Lagrange is in the middle of nowhere. And, we started going back and forth or managing a few other courses. And then I just kind of fell in love with the place and started polishing it up. And, and then all that, all that stuff kind of, kind of came back to me full circle.
0: And it's it's cool to hear that you have that design background uh, elsewhere. Cause talking to you guys a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, you're kind of designing a different uh, aside from the golf course, you know, there's a whole lot there just in the golf course, but Ashley, you were talking about some plans to, uh, update the facilities to kind of design a different golf experience than maybe the market has today. Um, what, what, tell us a little bit about those designs and, and what you guys have, um, what you guys have in the works for the fields.
1: Um, I guess it's kind of like a, a renovation of sorts but yeah same thing just just seeing all the places where people have, have gone wrong like what's going on with the industry and um it's it's I guess it's one thing to have a blank canvas or a blank piece of dirt to work with but then we we got there the um one thing we didn't design was that was the clubhouse facility and it was kind of too big for what we needed um inefficient not really well built in some areas and so we were trying to figure out what to do with the the this, this space if it had been up to us it probably would have been a much smaller a uh, different kind of place but we had it it was there so um getting to kind of live in it for five years when it wasn't ours and we couldn't really tear it apart we had a lot of time to think ran a lot of events out there and um we were kind of starting renovations last year right before uh the uh pandemic stuff started affecting uh tournaments and all that kind of stuff so we got to take a step back and say hey let's it's let's, uh let's really think about this so we decided to open everything up and we're putting a um a lot more I mean no that's too groundbreaking but you know a lot more outdoor space we're we're opening up the whole uh, bar patio and then we've uh done we've had pretty good success with doing some live music out there both dad got me into that as well when I was when I was younger he kind of exposed me pretty early taking me to I think uh, I think he took me in like eighth grade to see Neil Young at the Omni and it was like my my ears were ringing for three days after but you know I was I was, I was hooked on live music after that and uh, um, so we've got a beautiful place out there just not even if you're playing golf which is one reason I think people like the fields because if they're if you're a duffer or you're just going out there with your kids to have a good time or it's just something you do to get outside you're not in this corridor of trees and houses and you people walk around back and you're just kind of immediately uh kind of you kind of just fall into the space and in the, in the landscape and so the clubhouse sits at the top of a hill there and we decided to uh to just start turning that into a music venue as well but people like yourself have been super helpful and people that, that get it that are coming out there for other reasons and uh so we're, we're trying to just in, in, embrace that side of it and make it way more laid back and relaxed in a place you want to hang out and have some fun. It doesn't have so many, so many rules. Um, Yeah. It's, it's certainly a, um,
0: a movement in a way, right. For the game. And I think what's been interesting from where I sit is that uh, the people that do want that laid back um, open air, you know, live music, uh, they want all these things at some point. The, they still respect the traditions of golf, you know, yeah. and they're actually coming from that world. A lot of them, like myself, grew up at country clubs and tucking their shirt every time they play. And you know, it, it's it's just this appetite, I think, for authenticity in a way. And yeah, yeah. and that's what I think of when I hear about you know places like the fields is authenticity because it's it's uh it was built that way, you know. And um, but you guys see, you probably see all kinds coming through right i mean it, the field doesn't just appeal to the, the, yeah, the golf heads out there it's
1: beginners There's as well. all kinds for sure and i think if we chase that if we chase the the country club thing or we chase just being known for it being we didn't have the funds to chase that it didn't make sense uh business wise and and two it was just gonna get lost and being the same thing so uh, we haven't tried to use it as an excuse either to let go on the conditioning side um we we try to keep the course uh, for what it is and very good shape. We try the greens are way, way above par most of the season. Um, so, so we, we still get it on that end, but we try to, you know, let our hair down, so to speak on other, uh, in other aspects. And, um, but yeah, there's all walks of life out there. We've got some members at Peachtree that play a couple of them that, uh, you know, there's, there's a guy I was talking to one day on 10 and he's like, yeah, I, I love playing here. I'm only a member at two places. And it was, it was Peachtree and Dornick. And he was, a, I don't know, I won't go into exactly who he was. You might not appreciate that, but he comes down from Atlanta. His mom's got a place down there. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, and then we've got just yesterday, a, a friend that uh owns a restaurant in town came out with her little girl and her husband and been wanting to check it out and didn't even have clubs. So I just gave him my personal set of clubs and, and uh, put together some other rentals for him. And they went out and it's the first time they've ever been out there. So you get, you get everything in between. Um, Alan Doyle plays out there about four days a week. I mean, he was, you know, kind of, kind of honed his game out there before he went pro. So we definitely get all walks of life out there playing and, and um, it's, it's probably not for everybody, but I um, mean, that's, that's probably where you get lost trying to make it for everybody.
2: Yeah.
0: Mike, take us back to the decision to, um, purchase the fields and, and become the owner. Um, was that, you know, it being your uh, first build and you've built plenty of golf courses since then and, and been a part of many projects. Was it an emotional decision at all? You know, kind of the nostalgia of, man, this is my, the, my first go. This is my first project uh that's on it would you say that emotion played in it all
2: uh i knew that I, I knew that it was if we could get it at the right deal that it was where it would fit and you could make it work because it was not lined with homes or houses or any of that and uh i, um, I knew that uh actually once he got down there he'd put a lot of effort into it so we both knew that if we worst case bought it and didn't like it, we could probably sell it for more than we bought it for. And so it, it, it was emotional, but I I was trying to, I'm sort of trying to steer it a little and then get out of the way and just let the younger, let Ashley and his age group all go with it. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, and I, Ashley and I bought it together and, uh, Yep. Uh,
0: So on on those other courses, I I do. um, I mean, we've had a lot of members, like I said, that have come out to the fields and loved it. Uh, But doing my research, I mean, you've built other courses in the Atlanta area. So are there any that are uh, some of your favorites, Mike, that you like to recommend people go check out?
2: You know, one, I haven't played much, but it's I don't know what kind of shape they stay in all the time. But but, but Wolf Creek out near the airport, a lot of people seem to like that one. Uh, Heritage is downtown. It's a little whereas you're growing, you sometimes let owners tell you what they want more than what you want. and It's a more. Severe golf course, I think the slopes, 151 and it's. It's not what I like to build, but it's a, it stays in good shape. Um, good guys run it. A lot of people play there. I think they did sixty thousand rounds last year. Uh, and then we've built, I think we've built twenty six in the state of Georgia. So we've we've got them all over the state. And then, katichi um, is one that. Uh, one of my favorite ones was shut down. The g- developer went out and it's closed. I'd like to open it back up and that's called long shadow. But, um, it's, uh, when you're, I've always sort of championed a, a public golf and you really don't have much control once, once, uh, you've left those places. Uh, And if you have a, uh, if you're building for a private club, and there's a thousand members in the club, and it needs a million dollar renovation, that's a thousand dollars a member. If you're building for a one owner developer, that's a million dollars. So a lot of people don't don't think about it that way. So you've got two totally different markets, and. uh, you don't have you don't have the control over how something will look in that public market that you would have when there's a private club. that can say, "Hey, we're going to keep it at this level," and then you didn't got to worry about it. I mean, it's good. Superintendents are going to keep them up. So,
0: and is is that because uh, on the public side? Um you know, they're building in what their expected greens fee is of what they can actually, you know, how, how quickly they can recoup what, what the investment's going to be. And, and most public golf courses aren't going to, you know, make greens fees 200, 300 bucks. Is that why?
2: I think, I think that, you know, initially, let's say you can put 35 to 40 lots on a golf hole during the 80s and 90s. And if those lots were just selling for 100,000 a piece, that's $4 million a hole. So these guys would go out and build these golf courses, 18 holes, 20 holes. What is, what is that? 80, 80, 80 million bucks. So you've, and so that it's nothing to build a $10 million golf course that won't function because you're not really worried about it once you sold all the lots. So all of a sudden we ended up with all of that out there. So the key to find the key to come back to coming back and finding places like the fields was to find golf courses that just weren't surrounded by these homes. I mean, I, I just don't think that'll ever happen again. I think that was a disaster. I mean, it's you've got green sites now in some of these communities where you can't grow the grass because the trees have gotten so tall, but yet the, trees are on the property of the guys hanging around the green they want to hold you hostage to cutting their trees it's all kind of stories like that so it's um, i just think that ashley's age group and you're i think all of you guys have got a chance to to come out of this covid deal with with a different view of golf and i think it's happening and it happened accidentally but it's it's they don't want what my age group wanted. It's, it's
0: and I don't I don't know about Mike. That's ringing true from what I've seen. And I don't know about you, Ashley, but um, the people that I see build building the public accessible golf courses and managing them, and you know, being a part of the game in different ways. Uh, no one's looking to you know get filthy rich. They're not looking to hit $80 million in lot sales. I think most people are doing it because they were either burnt out from something else and they just really love being a part of golf and, and they want to see, you know, they want, they want to have a living obviously, right. You gotta, you gotta support your living. But, um, I just think that's a big difference from what Mike just described of the eighties and nineties, where it was a cash grab, and, and I just don't see that right now. I see people that are building and want to have good stuff, but they're not, they're not saying, Hey, this is my, this is, this is my, uh, uh, uh trust fund. You know, this is not, do you agree? Do you think like that's what's changed or that's part of what's changed?
2: Yeah, I, I think, I think you. The architect, remember Pete died in some article somewhere. He talked about he didn't know who Donald Ross was when he was in the army and stationed over near Pinehurst. He didn't know who he was. Well, the only reason that any of us should know who the architect was you don't know who the architects are on the buildings in downtown Chicago, except for maybe one or two. But the only reason you shouldn't, the only reason that came to be was so you could market real estate. It wasn't, the golf course could not afford. To market an architect they had to be selling lots you take the big resorts they wanted to name and some of the big architects you think about think about how some of these guys got popular they were either signatures that played golf that everybody knew or like in the case of like a tom Fazio, who did a lot of excellent golf courses around and might not be the style of everybody that but but i mean he was always known for giving them more than they but he's his Uncle George Fazio won the US Open. He was the pro at Pine Valley. Well, if you're the pro at Pine Valley and you've gotten into golf design, every time one of the members goes back home and something needs to be done, you call George. And so you can evolve into these national names that way. So that was how those names got big. But I see it now and I'm laughing sometimes where guys say, well, uh, a good example. I don't think a lot of people have heard of the fella, I think his name's Miller, that did the new thing at Charleston Muni. So, yep. you know, it's like, okay, Charleston Muni is going to be redone. Well, I hear that, I hear he did a really good job. And everybody's like, well, I've never heard of this guy. Okay, who cares? It's, 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 it's what you really, all that's got to go back, it's got to go away. It's got to be where you got, um guys like the guys at sweetens cove you got guys like us you got guys they just build a golf course make it what it works um it all boils down not to the paper but what it looks like when it's finished and and you don't have to say well that's not a that's not a tom Doak golf course or that's not a fazio golf course or that's not a reese jones there's a lot of good golf courses out there and it's funny how so many of the guys, my age will never go play those golf courses because they don't have that name on them. And, and what I've learned is that none of that, what really matters is those guys you met out there that know how to turn that dozer blade. If you get a guy that knows how to put that wood carving in in the wood, it's a lot different than the guy that sketched it in charcoal. And, um, I think the younger group is figuring it out. There's so many good guys out there now that design golf courses that people don't know. And I'm talking to somebody in my age, well, well, that's not a fuzzy over. That's not this. I'm like, guys, you just don't understand it.
0: This the celebrity of it. It's a really fascinating thought because and I don't know if our, our younger generation has figured it out completely because I, I you know I do a lot of planning of trips and I hear it. You know, if, if we're passing by a doke or we're passing by a Hans or, or um, you name the celebrity architect uh, they're upset, you know, they, they want to see those and, and getting people to uh, go off the beaten path per se and and try a place that doesn't have a, a name attached to it or a celebrity name attached to it sometimes can, can be
2: difficult. Yeah. It's it's very difficult, but I think y'all are going to overcome it. It's not going to happen in a year, but I think the whole I think y'all's age group is going to, when we get to where nobody really worries about what the name is, they just know it's a place they like to play, then we'll we'll probably be where we need to be with golf because, right now, my age group is more concerned about how the cart path is trimmed out and what size widescreen TV you got over the urinal, and and those kind of things. And your guys, I mean, we don't we don't do a lot of work over there on the cart paths and all that stuff out on the edges. It's um, you know we're not going to spend hundred grand a year pruning roots or something. If there's a place where you need to drop the ball, we'll drop the ball. And if there's a tournament, we'll come up with a rule that keeps you from breaking your wrist or something. But it's just like it's, I call it the European model. Those guys understand they they're going to play golf, and that's.
0: Yeah, that's it's obviously been a big inspiration for us as anybody that gets over there and sees how everyone engages with the game. Uh, you come home and you say, man, I think they, <laughs> they're they doing something right because they got a higher percentage of their their population that plays golf and um, everything's just much more sustainable in terms of cost and, and price
2: point. Well, if you imagine, if you had a house that was $250,000 house and a guy says, oh, you need to put a slate roof on it. Well, that's the way golf has gotten is the guy comes in and says, hey, you need to build a USGA green for this or this or this. Your golf course might not can afford that. It might not can afford triple row irrigation or whatever. You've got to make it work for the numbers. And and so many private club golfers think you don't know what you're doing. If you try to build a product that's economically efficient, that works, and you might be using the same materials, the same labor, everything else, but you're not, you're not going to put the maintenance level into what they've got. And it's, it's, it's changed. It changes the cost. You can't charge 40 or $50 to play golf and, and have a million dollar maintenance budget. Doesn't work. Hmm.
0: Do you- and I don't know this side of the game that well, the the build side and design side, but you know, I I do think you're right, Mike, that uh, the younger generations are going to start just um, focusing less on the celebrity draw of, of certain places and and the hype of them and just going where, you know, friends have recommended that it's good golf and not, not associated too much with uh, the price point or the prestige or the name on the, on the architect side though. I mean, we need good architects to go build those go, go, those courses uh, at places that have 30 forty dollar green fees. And you know, every time I've talked to architects on this podcast, it, it has been you know they're, they're aspirational, just like anybody, and they want to make the money that the big guys have made. They they want to have a firm like Corin Crenshaw someday. I mean, they aspire to to big projects and and big prestige and names. So, how much of a problem is that? Are there enough good yep. architects out there taking jobs that aren't going to make them, you know, millionaires?
2: Well, let's, you got to do it because you love doing it. Okay. But my, th- my, my theory, and it, it's, it, it probably was not when I started and when a lot of the other guys started, it was not the way to go, but we did design build. You got a lot of young guys now, if they quit worrying about, how many magazines they get in and start doing design builds, they can make a pretty good living. If they think they're just going to sit there and draw a drawing and then sub it out to a contractor here and a contractor there, it's not going to be that many of those jobs. And then you're not going to be able to charge enough. I mean, I can't imagine anything much more boring than going around meeting with country club boards that, you can't keep their attention span for more than an hour and they're hiring you based on, you know, it's just, it's a personality thing. They're hiring you to come in there. Oh, I love his drawings, do 50 bunkers. The guy that makes the money is the contractor. You can't, you can't charge enough to, so these guys have got to start doing their own build. If they do their own build while they're doing their design, they can make money, but I don't think they I just don't think there's much market for, I think you've got to become vertical. You got to have it where everybody in that company you're, you can design it, you can build it, and you can operate it or grow it in if you need to. But but the BS is over. It's just it was done on purpose. If you there's a book out called A Difficult Par, by um, Jim Hanson. And in that book, it's the it's the biography of Robert Trent Jones, or, and uh, he talks about back in the 80s when a group of architects, they all wanted to get together to be more professional. And it was a deliberate attempt to, to be more professional because there were a lot of guys out there that were doing design build and they, they wanted to be able to stand out above those. And that's, I think that's when we, let's face it, I, when I got in it, there just weren't that many good architects and and i'm not saying i'm not saying that i am but i'm i'm i am I ended up with enough courses to do and i've just seen some of these things that were just not very creative and i think now we've got a lot of i mean i'm i'm comfortable with ashley going and building the course i'm comfortable with you got guys out there that want to do it that are on the dozers that's it's a team effort there's just not a it's just not where you draw that thing and hand it off to somebody and if you come in there once a month you 're not going to get the same product hmm. it's a, it's a design bill business it's a craft it's not a profession
0: craftsmen artisans i uh, i uh the 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 people that I talk to that i always walk away from the conversation that really have that that deeper passion for that 's what they are for sure craftsmen hmm. uh Ashley, let's talk about the operations of of new places in this kind of the kind of mindset. You know, extending beyond um, building the golf courses and into you know running them, uh, which has its challenges. I know because I, I work with hundreds of operators now, and this is my daily job is talking to them most of the time, and I know there's challenges there. So, um, what has been your philosophy of operating a public? fee golf course and where do you think the industry has kind of screwed screwed up at times you know I mean they're they're we publicly see all the challenges but are 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 you have you seen things that man I'm not gonna do it that way?
1: I mean absolutely every day I mean even things I do myself I turn around and go wow I'm not gonna do it that way anymore but um I don't know it's a weird business because you're people think of it as the golf business, but as an owner, you're really running a conglomeration of notoriously difficult and low profit margin businesses all under one roof. So you're basically running a farm, a restaurant, and a retail operation, which all in themselves have a high likelihood of not succeeding and then you decide you're going to do it all in a lot of places have a guy that wanted to play golf in college you're on the tour and didn't make it and wanted to be around golf and then that's the dude you're putting in charge of your farm restaurant and retail operation and um, that's kind of how I look at it and and uh because a superintendent is just a farmer you're just trying to grow Bermuda grass and or at least in our case, Bermuda grass or grass, bent grass up in y'all's place or whatever it is, you're growing. But I think maintenance side, too, uh, I heard somebody say once, a superintendent that, you know, dad was talking about these two million dollar budgets. But um, like at our place, uh, a superintendent said something like it's you could spend so much money in your budget managing that last 10 percent. So whether you choose to just let that last 10 percent go and get the 90 percent right. Um, but if you're the same with watering or whatnot, I mean, you look at, maybe you have some dry areas, some brown areas. Well, well, in order to get the coverage, like from a design standpoint or an operation standpoint to, to get that irrigation coverage where you, you know, over here by the cart path is, is fine. Or this one little spot, you, you might have to spend so much money on water or irrigation or time to get. 100% green, but then you end up from a playability wise, maybe wet over here or whatnot. So it's, are you going for playability? You're going for aesthetics? I mean, so as an owner, you're always making those choices. I mean, some of them are design choices or operation choices or, or um, finance choices, but it's, uh, I think that's what we do there is we decide what part of that 10% we're just going to let go. And, uh, um, from a uh, ma- think,
0: from a maintenance yeah. standpoint, I think what I've read on on your guys' side is, you know, you, you have to make those those decisions where the budget's allocated, right? And it seems like has the gr- yeah. the greens are kind of the the main part, and then maybe other areas you have to say, okay, we're going to live with with that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does what it does, and you've got to make it, you know, operate in the black. and And so when we got there, we haven't really changed the maintenance budget too much really haven't changed the equipment too much. We ended up using for years, the same equipment they had and same budget. Um, But if you take that whole, if you look at it like per acre and you you said, Hey, I'm going to take this budget and spread it over this entire piece of land. If you kind of reconstitute that. And so we just concentrated a lot more of it around the greens, really tried to get those in shape. And instead of trying to go out here and, you know, fertilize the, all the fairways three times a year, maybe drop it back to one, um, you know, instead of going after these weeds in the rough, let them go, but make sure the greens are super clean. Then that just kind of evolved in the approaches. So kind of the, we've got three acres of greens. That's, that's where the most intense work goes Then 10 acres of surrounds that we really keep super tight in the growing season and we uh, get a lot of compliments about that. A lot of people have played some really nice places, um, come down and are really surprised. Now you get 20 feet past that. And some of the fairways, you might, you might have some clay patches. You might have some, uh, um, some wear patches from the carts. It's another thing with public golf, like, the, you know, people talk about Scotland or they talk about Pacific dunes or they talk about Pinehurst, they don't have some drunk jackass driving around doing, you know, 30,000 rounds a year where they're all in these, you know, just DUI buggies where they're driving around doing whatever they want. I mean, they're, they're walking, they've got caddies. It's the, the cart does so much to the golf course. So, um, but yeah, maintenance wise, that's kind of what we, and then changing some things back, like dad was talking about design and what people spend. I mean, we designed and built the fields, but, the second owner brought in another uh not another architect but another golf contractor and they decided to redo all the tee boxes and he was a member down at um sage valley and uh so he was obviously getting some consulting from the superintendent there and and the guy had deep pockets so he got a brand new fleet of a maintenance equipment and they, they redid the tees but they they sand capped them all with, I mean, some of them we took out, we were gradually redoing them, but I mean, there was 12 plus inches of sand in most of the, the back and, and middle tea boxes. And, uh, it was, um, I mean, they do that because at places like Sage Valley where they're walk mowing their teas, almost treating them like greens, they're mowing them down at, you know, quarter of an inch and, and, uh, or less, uh, They they water them daily, so they've got to keep them firm. Uh, They're not getting the kind of play we are, but they couldn't. They didn't have the water out of the out of the fields to do it. They didn't have the irrigation system, so he did all that, and then they go back and put the same. He spent all that money, um, push these tees up, and then uh, go back and put in to save money the same Rainbird Impact heads that have been there since 1989. And you couldn't water these tees and he didn't have the mowing equipment to mow them. He wasn't going to pay the labor to mow them that frequently. So then they just dried out because the one day a week you're watering them, they just perk right through and then all the tees are are dead. So what, what he spent all this money on to be a quote unquote improvement, the maintenance level, you couldn't maintain it. So we've, we're going back and pushing the sand out of those and getting back to a clay base where it can hold some water and mowing them a little higher. And to the golfer that, translates into to more grass, um, a better looking tee box to their eye. Um, but if you look at it on paper, you're like, well, this is a couple of $12 an hour guys that built this tee and metalist golf built this tee or whatever golf, not metalist or whatever company was, was here, or there, a contractor. And like, not that they did a bad job at it, but they're building something that they don't have any control over who's maintaining it. And it was built to this, this spec. So who's to say which one's better because of the, yeah, it's a lot of, it does come down to, to maintenance.
0: I, I, I see a lot of uh shiny object syndrome in and golf, um, you know, my, myself as a golfer, right? You, 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 convince yourself that new driver for 600 bucks is gonna, it's gonna do it. It's gonna add 10, 12 yards to my game this year. And I'm going to be a totally new golfer. All right. I have to have that new putter. Um, there's, there's that on the consumer side, but then on, on golf courses, right. Uh, country clubs always are kind of chasing their neighbor that has something shiny that they, that they now want. And, and I, I hearing you say that, like, you know, the sustainability is the word I come back to, right. Okay. Uh, right now we'll use that as the example. We're in a boom time for golf. Uh, COVID has been terrible for so many people, but golf industry has seen rounds through the roof and everybody's now deciding what to do with those excess funds. And what I keep, keep thinking to myself and, I, and I'm a part of different places that have done this, but what, what is this going to look like in a recession? What, what is, you know, the improvements we make in the, in the, in the dollars that we're spending to do all this stuff at our golf course, is it, you know there's maintenance attached to that there's there's other financial impacts attached to that it looks great for 2021 cuz you know profits are up revenues are up but what does it look like in a recession and I, I don't think people are asking themselves that and and isn't that mike would know better than than i would but isn't that what ha- kind of happened with the 80s and 90s too is that we were kind of spending out of control on on things that we thought we needed and and then turn around in the thousands, two thousands. And people are like, no, I don't actually enjoy that that much.
2: Yeah. I can, I can talk to you about that. This, 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 uh, entire business, the business of golf and the game of golf are two entirely different things. And when I was growing up, let's start there. If I wanted a nice set of golf clubs, I had to go to the golf pro. He could order them. Get what I needed. If I wanted to buy a tideless golf ball, I had to go to the golf pro. Now, all of a sudden, that same club can be bought in a PGA Superstore. There's four PGA Superstores in Atlanta. They do over a hundred million dollars a year. If that hundred million dollars a year was going to the same entity that cuts that four and a quarter inch cup, and there's say four hundred of those entities in the state. You divide that out, how much money gets pulled away from the actual playing field by all of these various things. And then in America, we just have this, we have allowed the the PGA of America has got 28,000 members. Golf course superintendents are 20,000. I don't know what club managers got, but you figure that how many large industries do you know where the main associations are for employees and not owners and then those employees want to tell these owners how to do it and the ideal growing medium for that is the private club and so then you get into a private club and you've got these boards which are egos and it's like I want to do a little bit more than my last guy did so all they know is what they heard in a one hour long dissertation from someone, and they go through all that, and if you if, if it's, it's all about like you said, they want to do it a little bit better than their neighbor. Well, so all the vendors and everybody else are sitting back looking at that. They're supporting these, these um, the high dollar um, buyers. And everybody said, hey, I can make money here. I can make money. I can sell this greens more. I can sell this lightweight fairway unit. I can sell all of these things. And so you, you, the path of least resistance is to go to private clubs. And everything there gets to where it's so over the top that when things go bad or there's a recession, clubs start saying, how are we going to do it? And so I, I just have one question that I, I, I try to ask clubs, and a lot of them don't like it, but is that club there for the member or is that member there for the club? And in so many cases today, the member is there for the club because they have created via these associations. And I, I'm old enough now where if they don't like me saying that, they can just do whatever. But, but via those associations, they can't, They've everybody they've got hired there is telling them what to do. And so you get to where it's just way over the top. And I see that all the time. I really, every once in a while, we'll do something with those guys, but I, I really don't get involved with a lot of private clubs because it's just, it's a, it's a headache. I mean, I had some friends the other day that were architects coming down to Georgia to interview at a private club and I said, well, how many interviews? He said, well, there's 14, but then we're going to narrow it down to seven. Then they're going to come back at three. I said, well, that just has your stomach churning the whole time because it's not whether you're good or whether they like your product. You're just sitting there. It's a dog and pony show. And, and nothing don't, – don't get to where your whole business is based on that. So I, I think that you, you've got to – the way y'all's age group is going – it's going to take a lot of that out. And I don't think the public courses and the bandons and that will be hurt by recessions nearly as much as some of these major renovations we've seen lately that these private clubs have done. And I mean, that's a lot of dollars and, and a lot of money. And a guy can easily just say, you know what, I'm going to go down there and play at the fields or I'm going to go here. It's just I think a
1: recession would help the, in, without saying a recession would help. The recession might help the golf business, especially the public golf business long-term because there's, as dad was talking about the real estate, he's, I've heard him say before, I mean, a lot of those places weren't built for golf demand. They were built for development demand or housing demand. So there's just too much out there. So same thing. You divide all the golf that's being played amongst the courses. You've got a lot that are just, hanging on um and if if somebody's not serious about it or they can't operate it efficiently and some of those places go away in communities that have so much supply and and the golfer a lot lot of times looks at it like oh it's great because i can get on golf now or this and go play for 25 bucks but then he's pissed off at the condition of some of these places well it if some of those places just go away you know, the, the rounds don't the, – the, the price doesn't have to go up that much, but then you've got a lot more volume playing at those places that made it, and it's going to be easier for them to make it and make a living and, and keep the places that need to stay around, um, like the fields. And I'm not saying that just because it's ours, but whereas some of these other places that might not have should have ever been built can just go away, and and um, that's, that's going to have to happen, and it would be a much healthier – place for golf in the end and people would end up with a better product that it's still a pretty reasonable price so i'm not really scared of a recession on on our end because i we we know how to operate it um in in triage mode and and you can you can get through that but if if you're just operating on the the fluff then then yeah it would it would scare the hell out of me
0: that's a a interesting take and I, you know, I grew up in, you uh, know, Ohio and Northeast Ohio, and we've lost there, um, man, so many uh, mediocre golf courses. And then you see 2020, everyone's working from home, uh, the boom and rounds. Nobody, I got all my buddies complaining about getting tee times, you know, and and that, hey, man, all these courses have closed in the last five to ten years. You know, it's crazy. We need to to open a golf course, and I keep thinking what what you're thinking, Ashley, which is like you know, these courses that are seeing full T sheets and dollars coming back their way, um, man, I hope they know how to operate because if they do those dollars can go into making it really good golf. And, and that contraction of the market now is, is a really good thing because we went from having all these mediocre golf courses to, you know, full active, awesome golf courses that, um, you know, can compete with a private club in, in terms of experience and in, in terms of uh, just the quality of golf. But we still got a ways we're, we're not there just yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ashley, I want to ask you about the Fields Party. So you, you've, uh, you're a big music guy, as you already mentioned uh, you, you lived in New York for a while, ran some, some big events. Um, tell me what the Fields Party is how would you describe it to somebody who had no idea what, what it is? Uh,
1: I don't even think it is what it is yet. Like, it's going to take a few more years for people to really see what we want to do out there. Um, I think it could, uh, but it, it kind of happened organically. Like we were just trying to have, we would have a, trying to do something, just a customer appreciation thing the end the, a few years ago. And, um, uh i'd heard this really good band out of nashville that i was just immediately like i gotta get these guys and i called their manager up in nashville i mean never met them, never seen them live just heard their stuff and i just i said uh and he was like you want to do what he's like they don't it's a golf course we don't play at country clubs and i'm just like so we worked it out these guys drive up from mobile and we we were um trying to, uh, you know, really just have a customer appreciation party, just just tell people thanks for supporting us, kind of celebrating, buying the course. Um, we wanted to kind of show off the back uh, to a lot of people in the community that look at us, uh, a lot of people that aren't familiar with golf still think it's a private kind of bourgeoisie thing. And, like, they don't know if they can come out there and eat. Can they come out there and bring their kid and hit a bucket of balls? You know, dressed? Can you wear jeans? Do you have to have a? You know, it's it's still, um, and we're a pretty blue collar town in Lagrange. I think a pretty normal town for for America, and people aren't. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about golf, and people have that, that would come out and have fun at our place. Um, the the stigma of it, or whatnot. Keeps them from coming out. So we we're trying to do something, to just invite the community too, and say, "Hey, y'all, y'all come out and just—it's pretty out here. A lot of people just play golf because, I mean, they know they suck at golf, but they come out at the end of the day and play because they get to walk around uh, in a in a pretty spot and and just do just let their head go. And um, so we we're trying to just get people to see the place differently. A lot of people too come out there. They're fighting for eight a.m. rounds. They finish at one. It's hot as hell in Georgia. Um, they, they're, they're out of there. And, and my favorite time of the day out of the fields is, is sunset. And and you usually get the hardcore walkers that are out there in the evenings. And those are the only people that ever saw it. And, um, so we decided to throw this party just to and do a barbecue and all that. And anyway, the first year it, it um, I'd already paid all this money for the band. They're coming and then it hasn't rained. We were on a 48 day drought, I think. And, uh, so here comes this tropical storm. We've got like sound and production. And I had my friend, we'd, we'd smoked, uh, three hogs, 120 chickens. Like it was, a, a and then here comes this, this tropical storm and they're saying we're going to get like eight inches of rain. It's blowing the whole thing's outside. So the sound guy went and set up all the sound equipment's there. The band's like, should we come? People are calling, they've already bought tickets, uh, and so me and the superintendent, I walked down to the maintenance barn mm-hmm. and they're like, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I said, look, we've already spent all the money. I said, so we're going to throw a party. Whoever comes, comes. And I, I uh, so I had a move. They looked at me like it was crazy. We moved every lawnmower and tractor and bag of fertilizer out of our maintenance shed because the clubhouse wasn't big enough. And, um, we rented some porta potties and the sound man. We stuffed like enough sound for 500 people inside our maintenance barn. My friend that had just been from the event company, we borrowed some pipe and drape and draped off the stage. And then the sound was incredible. And like the 100 people that came, like we blew the doors off that place. And, uh, um, the band had a great time. They, they ended up being awesome. Um, we've become friends with them. They, they came back and played last year. So the word of mouth around town was just don't miss an event. So when we did it the next year, it was just, um, you know, we had almost 400 people show up on the back lawn and had the same band come out. So a lot of people didn't get to hear them and, and, uh, had a couple other local bands. And, and so now it's just kind of become a thing that, uh, people look forward to, and we hope to keep, keep growing it.
0: I'll I'll tell you this now, because I, I read a little write up on the field party and um, I think they had quotes of the band, you know, talking about what a unique environment it was and the best acoustics they've had and maybe anywhere is what the (laughs) one quote was. And, uh, and just the description of that party, uh, Ashley, I knew the golf course was a place that our members would enjoy, but, that's why I called you guys about our member member this year is that party. And, and that's what we look for in our member member is like, yeah, the golf is, you know, it's central. It's part of our DNA and who we are. But uh, if we can get some live music and maybe some barbecue and just the, the that good vibe um, that's what we're looking for in September boys. So maybe not, Absolutely. maybe not as full scale as the field party, but something similar. We can,
1: we can, we'll, we'll, have some, we'll have some fun. It's uh, <laughs> I, we, we enjoy doing those things. Yeah, that uh,
0: and it sounds like you guys are set up for it, man. I mean, the the pictures I've seen from the back patio and just that uh, that setting is pretty ideal for a party. No, it absolutely is. Um, well, I could talk to you guys all day, uh, and I'm sure you got other things to do. So I'm gonna r- start wrapping us up with a little something that we call the 19th Soul. It's 18 quick questions to reveal the soul of the golfer. So this will be. Uh, team young here. I'm not going to make you guys answer each one we're going to do. Would you like to do front nine, back nine, or would you like to go alternate shot? What would you prefer? I'd probably say alternate shot. All right, we'll go. We'll go one after the other. I'll bounce between you guys. Um, I I took 35 questions from Marcel Proust, who's a French novelist. Uh, of the 20th century and he was looking to uncover the truest nature of a human being and, and what we're trying to do with these 18 questions is get to the soul of the golfer with you guys so um so who's gonna get me started number one
2: what ashley all
0: right ashley when were you the happiest on the golf course
1: i think uh building them when i was little with dad being out there when it was just uh when I was untainted by any of uh, the views I might have now just walking around on one seeing a piece of land as a what it was going to be and and um that's what golf kind of always was to me so even when I play now I'm always looking at that stuff but um yeah just just walking around looking at it as a landscape and not as a uh not as a height of cut but just just uh that's when I'm happiest even now like I go out in the evenings and and just just walk around it so um I, I think that's it. That's a great opening hole right there. Uh, number
0: two, the Mike. What's the scariest shot in golf?
2: Uh, tight lie, flop shot, short side, green sloping away from you.
0: A lot of a lot of that concession I saw on TV this past week. Yes, there is. Number three, Ashley, what is your go-to order at the halfway house?
1: (laughs) Um, Usually depends on the amount of beers I've drank, but probably, I mean, I would just say hot dog, mustard, um, whatever beer is the coldest.
0: Number four, Mike, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game?
2: Uh. Can cart addiction be a trait? <laughs> yes,
0: that um, qualifies.
2: Okay. <laughs> that definitely qualifies. And that's because every, I, I love to walk, but so many guys I play with my age, are going to ride a cart, and they don't want you walking when, when we're at the club and we're – so anyway, that's I hear that one for me.
0: No, it's tough. Uh, number five, Ashley, what is the quality you look most for in a playing partner?
1: somebody that just doesn't take it so damn serious. Uh, Somebody you can get out there and laugh with. So I think just uh, jovialness, I guess. Somebody that can give you some serious shit, too.
0: (laughs) Number six, Mike, what is the trait you most deplore in other people's golf games?
2: Um, Not understanding – how significant the difference is between them and the tour player. (laughs)
0: Yeah, we all need a little humble pie.
2: Number seven, Ashley,
0: what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course?
1: Uh, I'm
2: pretty
1: quiet out there on the golf course. I can't even that's that's botching your question but um i uh, I don't take my game too seriously so it's it's you're, uh, you're
0: fresh every time that's that's yeah. good number uh number eight mike what golfing talent would you most want to have yourself
2: i mean what personal what, yeah what golfing golf. talent
0: what what part of the golf game would you wish you had
2: for yourself to be really really good at? Oh, um, 50, 60 yard pitch shot.
0: That is where the cheddar is made. Uh, number nine, approaching the turn, Ashley, what is your most treasured golf possession?
1: I think probably my like memorabilia wise, does that count or just playing wise, like whatever, uh, still got a tag I guess from uh what I was saying from the the uh being on the, the maintenance crew it says superintendent's badge dad got me when I was at the 82 masters I guess I was probably six years old so that's that's probably that's, that's a cool one um equipment I uh big big uh believer it's the the uh, Indian, not the arrow. So, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I don't get too attached to too much that that wise, but yeah, memorabilia wise, that'd probably be it.
0: Number 10, Mike, what's the one thing in your golf bag that you should throw out?
2: 20 degree hybrid. <laughs> Any reason? It's
0: just, just, I don't like them. <laughs> Number 11, Ashley, uh, what is your favorite occupation at the golf course? Good question for a golf operator.
1: Yeah. Mowing, um, mowing approaches. I have a rough day. I like to just put my headphones on, go out there and, uh, it's super, uh, just rewarding. Nobody bothers me, but you can really, you feel like you're making a difference in something. You can, you can see it. It's, I don't know. It's relaxing. So I like mowing, mowing approaches. Mike, have
0: you ever asked another golfer for their autograph?
2: I asked a guy via my shaper. uh, I did ask, I asked Ben Hogan for his, and my shaper's dad was Ben Hogan's golf pro and his traveling mate for a long time. And a guy named Dick Metz, who was at Shady Oaks. And when, when, um, Shaper was in the office one day. I said, "This one autograph I've always wanted. And uh, he said, Well, let's uh let me call Miss Valerie or whatever her name was, so we'll get that done. Well, within a week, uh I had the Hogan autograph back. And then we've gotten a few. That's a good one. A few others like that, but that was I just I just I try to always leave those guys alone. Right. I just it just doesn't mean that much to me. Ashley, what historical
0: golf figure do you most relate to? I'd probably say,
1: uh, I guess relate to, um, I think Ross a lot. Like I went out to, when I went to Scotland a few while back, um, I just spent three weeks camping, like backpacking and, uh, um, checking out golf courses. And one morning I camped out on the beach at, at Dornick and I got out of my tent and put on a golf shirt and walked to the golf shop and uh, um, rented some clubs and said, Hey, can you get me on? And, and they, they let me go off by myself. And I was out there. And I know he spent a lot of time there and he was a superintendent turned, turned architect. And uh, um, I just fell in love with Scotland and that place. And it was so little about, I had so many non-expectations about Dornick and it's so famous, but then you just got it being there. You're like, man, this would just be a cool place, even if there wasn't this golf course here. And uh but just uh how his career and what went and uh uh growing up listening to dad talk about him and just just how it um seemed like he was in it for the right reasons.
0: That's great that's a great answer. That's one of the best ones we've had. I haven't had anyone respond with sleeping in a tent on the beach of Dornock yet for that one. <laughs> Uh, Mike, any golf regrets?
2: I'm sure there's some, it's, 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 I've been fortunate to, I guess I've, I've got a course we did in Costa Rica and, uh, um, uh, talking about autographs, we'll go to that. That's part of the regret was, um, uh, Neil Armstrong was there and he'd written me a letter about liking the golf course. And I had an opportunity to, uh, play golf with Neil Armstrong and I didn't get to play with him. Wow, and that that would have been my just right off the top of my head. I'm sure there's some, but that's you know, here's a dude that never signed autographs and and was down there because he and the owner were big buddies, and he didn't come down that often, they wanted me to take him out and play golf, and I was doing something else, and it didn't happen but i I wish I could have done that. I'd love to talk to the dude that'd been on the moon for three four hours. That's, that's a good one. I, I feel like from these questions,
0: I need to schedule two separate pods now just to talk to you guys about <laughs> these one-off stuff. Uh, Ashley, number 15, what is your, this is tough for architecture guys. So forgive me. Uh, cause these, these next two questions always, um,
1: stump everybody, but Ashley, what's your favorite hole in all of golf? Ones I've played recently. I don't know. I can't pick just one. Ones I played recently. Um, I'd have to look at it almost as, as, is, is, I guess, I guess memories, um, being out at Pacific dunes with dad. Um, there's some of my favorite holes out there. We played one time, just walked some of his buddies and, uh, we played the sheep ranch before it was, uh, the sheep ranch. And, uh, I don't know exactly what number hole it would have been, but that was probably one of the coolest experiences I've ever had on a golf course is, is being out there on one of those greens, just hitting, hitting shots in with, with, with dad. Um, it is, and then another one probably just be a, a hole at the fields, probably probably seven or because um, of the view or number, number 10 out there. Because I remember, remember being out there when I was younger, when it was being built and looking back now and seeing how that came full circle. But I, I don't know. That was kind of beating around the bush, your answer. I don't really have a, a number um, favorite yeah. hole. That's probably it. You got there. It's people always just
0: probably most of the time just go with what's recent. <laughs> Cause yeah. that's, that's a hard one. Now, Mike, I'm, I'm actually happy you got this one though. Uh, what's your least favorite hole in all of golf?
2: Never thought about it that way. Give you a shocker that it's, it's one that I don't, people are going to say that guy's an idiot. Um, I'll, uh, the, my least favorite hole that's got a lot of notoriety and I don't, care for it today is the uh, road hole at St. Andrews. And I say that because of the, I just don't feel like you're meant to hit it over a hotel. I don't, I don't, it's, it's not that I think it's a bad hole. It's my least favorite, not saying it's bad. It's just for me, it's just, if I was to build that today, people probably would argue with me on it. Just happens to be in the setting and all that. Um, it, it's it's grown past what it was meant to be. I'm I'm a Does sucker. That make sense at all.
0: Yeah, I'm a sucker for good contrarian answers. I'll I'll just say this on this podcast we've been doing. This is our fifth or sixth episode this year. The 17th at St Andrews has been the favorite hole of at least two of those guests. So I yeah. I but I hear you. I I, I understand what you're saying, Mike.
2: Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's a, I'm not supposed to have to hit it to to get the right approach. I just, it's, it's different.
0: It's different. And I'll say this to add to it. um, There's a lot, it's, it's a commonly replicated hole, right? People take templates and try to rebuild them everywhere. At courses that do that, the road hole is typically one of my least favorites. I can. That's, name, what, that's I could, what
2: I'm sort of trying to say. Yeah, I can name. Three that or setting and all, I can appreciate everything that's meant to the game, but building that hole or that that template, or would be my least favorite.
0: Yeah, trying to do it elsewhere, kind of. You said it
2: better than I did. Wow, you were. Really, that,
0: that's another pot in itself, man. We could just go through template holes and talk about all that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we don't want to make this three hours. Um, 17 and 18. So 17, Ashley, uh, this is a good one for you. As we've been talking about music. If you had one song to listen to for the golf course for the rest of your life and you only get one,
1: what song you going with? (laughs) Oh God. And, um, I probably just put on some, you know, pick one of my favorites from the grateful dead. Cause you can just listen to that for over and over on loop hours. There's so many great songs that you might get tired of them. So I I'd probably just, that's what I listen to mowing. Um, a lot of times I'd probably just throw on some grateful dead. So if it had to be one, maybe, I don't know, um, walking on the moon, maybe we'll see, uh, long one, you know, make it, yeah, make it yeah. count. something long, let it, let it go before it has a repeat again. <laughs>
0: And number 18, last question, Mike. If you had a motto, uh, maybe maybe you do, but if you had a motto, uh, what would it be?
2: Uh, for golf? Yeah. For, the, for design or what?
0: Yeah, you could take it for, for whatever you'd like, but something related to golf in life. They're usually pretty applicable.
2: Just um, keep it simple.
0: Keep it simple? Yeah. I think that's great. Guys, uh, this has been a lot of fun this morning. I appreciate you coming on the show, giving us some insight to the fields. Uh, we're looking forward to, to being down with you guys. Where can everybody that's not a member of New Club look you guys up? Where uh, Where should they go?
2: Ashley, you? Yeah.
1: Okay. Our website, thefieldsgolfclub.com. The and uh, there's some links on there to articles. And uh, we're redoing it right now to get some better photos up. Um, if you just want to see photos we try to keep the Instagram uh, is a good place to go. Uh, Facebook, we're not as active on, but uh, we'll, get, we'll get better than that. Um, but, yeah, we're on, we're on Twitter. I think the Fields GC, uh, we're on all, all the platforms. You can, you can usually find us with the Fields Golf Club search. Uh, but I'd say Instagram, probably a good spot to start. Great. And, and then
2: I've we'll... got mydgolf.com is the website for the design.
0: Great. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on. Really, really fun discussion uh, to be a part of. And I'll look forward to seeing you guys soon because I'll we be do down too. there with
2: the new club group. And th- thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll be throwing a good party
1: for you guys soon.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Satar. The backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. Golf Blueprint is the official partner of this year's spring meeting at Sweetens Cove, started by fellow New Club members Kevin Moore and Nico Daris. Golf Blueprint creates research-driven improvement plans tailored to your game. If you are a member of New Club, you can sign up directly in the app for your exclusive Golf Blueprint membership. You will receive six Golf Blueprint practice plans delivered monthly at a 25% discount. If you are not a member of New Club, head over to golfblueprint.com and start your improvement plan today.